1: Welcome to another Recovery Talks podcast. I'm Mandy Nunes, the Assistant Director of Montana's Peer Network, and I'm going to be your host today. And today we have a special guest, April Jackson is my guest today. And April and I wanted to do a podcast really talking about the challenges of having a borderline personality diagnosis and the things that she does to uh, maintain her recovery and kind of some of the um, signals that maybe she needs to work on different areas in her recovery, how she knows that there's maybe some backsliding there, and just talk about what that has looked like for her. Welcome to the podcast today, April. I'm so excited that you're here joining me to talk about this. This can be a really hard subject to talk about.
0: Yeah. Thank you for having me. Um, absolutely. Having borderline personality disorder is not easy. Um, you know, people don't understand it. It's, it's very often misconstrued with, um, bipolar disorder because oftentimes the way that my triggers or my reactions to my triggers look can be very comparable to that of bipolar disorder. You know, with having um, borderline personality personality disorder, there is trauma and neglect in my upbringing. And so uh, another kind of byproduct of that diagnosis is also PTSD. And so not a lot of people like recognize and understand and and look at it like that. So when they see kind of like these reactions of um, not being able to uh, think clearly or, you know, adequately explain like what's going on or, or, you know, articulate what you're trying to explain, you know, then they just think, oh, well, you know, manic state or whatever. And, and that's, really just uh not true and very frustrating to deal with (laughs) so a lot of the times when i when i realize you know that i'm maybe not making too much sense when i'm uh talking about something and i'm feeling very triggered i'll stop myself and i'll just be like okay hold on like i understand i might not be making sense give me a second and then I, I bring it back and then I say, okay, like this is what's going on. Cause then I have to just be like mindful all the time. Like, okay, wait a minute. Like, this isn't making sense to um, like an, you know, a, a typical person who is not in my brain listening to my racing thoughts. So,
1: right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me, actually. Um, yeah. yeah. Borderline. Borderline personality disorder is is a disorder created from trauma, usually childhood trauma, usually a lot of childhood trauma that manifests itself in many, many different ways. And borderline personality disorder can look very different for different people. It doesn't manifest itself the same way um, in everybody. And I think it is, um, it's really stigmatized, right? That particular diagnosis, in my experience, my personal experience, has been very stigmatized. I can recall working within the behavioral health field at a service provider agency, and the term borderline um, was used to describe people not having uh, compliant behaviors, people that were quote unquote, attention seeking, people that were being quote unquote, dramatic or manipulative. Um, And it was just this like broad label term, oh, she's just being borderline or he's a very borderline individual. And that was super frustrating and, and hurtful to me personally, as somebody who has mental health diagnoses, and that was my original diagnosis um, years and years ago, was borderline personality disorder, and so it was super hurtful and frustrating to me. And there were conversations that I had to have with providers and clinicians about why that language was hurtful. What are your experience with experiences with having a diagnosis that's so stigmatized?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I also work, um, not so I work in an addiction agency and, um, you know, I have had, um, a direct, a clinical supervisor, you know, sit there and say like similar things. And, and I'm just like, are you like serious? Like that? I, I, at first was just dumbfounded because it's like, mm, are you serious? Right now, like that's that's not okay in my book. You know, I talked to my direct supervisor, and you know, I've I've advocated very much so that demeaning terminology like that is not terminology that should be used in the workforce. Um, it's not something that my direct supervisor uses. It's not terminology that I use, and it's not terminology that um, any of us that work there now use. And so now that I've kind of advocated that, now it's, you know, it's known that that is a a standard that I have for our practice going forward.
1: Yeah. Good for you for advocating for that. And I, and I had to do the same thing. I had to advocate as well. I think it's important for, You know, people to understand that these these, uh, behaviors, for lack of a better phrase, I think that's how a a lot of clinicians um, or providers see them as these kind of inappropriate behaviors, or yeah, I guess that's the best way to describe it. Really aren't these like intentional behaviors. that that we participated in or that we chose to have. I think it's really important, especially early on in somebody who has borderline personality disorders recovery, when we feel everything very intensely, Our, our emotions are very intense and very extreme. And the behaviors that come with those extreme emotions um, and some of the other symptoms that are part of borderline personality disorder are their survival mechanisms, right? These behaviors are survival mechanisms that we developed in order to survive the lives that we had, to survive all of the trauma that led to this diagnosis, and we're not intentionally being, you know, manipulative or dramatic or, um, you know, non-compliant or rebellious or risk-taking. Kind of all of these terms that you hear to describe people who have borderline personality disorder. We're suffering, right? These yeah. feelings are painful. I've heard. I've heard it described, and for me, this was very true early on. Um, I've heard it described that emotions, especially painful emotions for somebody with borderline personality disorder is like having third degree burns emotionally. Like it's so deeply intense. And that's why you see so much risk-taking and so much suicidality and angry outbursts and that kind of thing is because the suffering is so intense that oftentimes it can be really hard to use our tools or develop new tools. And it takes a long time. DBT was developed initially for people who have borderline personality disorder to help us develop these coping skills to be able to bring us from a level 10 emotion back to a level six emotion, um, where we can actually cope with it a little bit better and learn how to, um, navigate those emotions in a way that is more honestly beneficial for us. Is it also beneficial for other people? Yes, but it's definitely makes it more manageable for us.
0: Yep. Absolutely. I, uh, so I got my diagnosis, my proper diagnosis, uh, two, two years ago in April. Prior to that, I had gotten a bipolar diagnosis and prior to that, it was just depression. So I would say the first year that I worked with my current therapist she was really just trying to get me as stable as she possibly could within that first year. Um, I was going through a lot of emotional, emotionally challenging things um, with my kids and my family and whatever. So then this last year, we've been working really hard on the DBT stuff that has been proving very beneficial to me especially uh in this last couple of weeks which we'll get to
1: yes yes so I'm just curious if you would be willing to share how do you know when you're doing well in your recovery and maybe in compared to how do you know when you're not doing well what are those signs for you
0: so when i'm when i'm doing well um what that looks like is i'm staying on my routine my routine is really very simple you know get up make my coffee talk to my best friend for a little bit while i'm waking up take my shower get ready for school or work you know and then have my day come home have my meal wind down go to bed whatever my day looks like and then on the weekends you know is more it's still structured but it has a little flexibility between you know getting housework done and school work whatever when i'm not on my when i'm not doing well there is a lot of missed medications a lot of um deregulation I can really feel like I just keep saying I don't feel well I never know what that necessarily is I just say I don't feel well um it's not necessarily that I feel like I have a cold or you know that my stomach is upset I just all around am not well very run down so then I'm not on my routine showering goes out the window basic necessity is like wanting to eat or caring to eat goes out the window I want to sleep all the time I don't you know I just I don't take care of my house I don't take care of myself my animals are about the only thing that gets taken care of and you know it's just because I genuinely care about them more than myself um, when I am not at my best so that's that's what that looks like
1: that makes sense. And I, I, I relate to that a lot. Um, I, I especially relate to, for me, um, how oftentimes when things are out of balance for me, it manifests itself physically. Like mm-hmm. I will not feel well physically. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes also struggle to like identify what specifically and so I relate to that a lot. When you, when you get to that place, you know, where you can identify that there's some struggle happening, and maybe you're not balanced, and things are off kilter a little bit, what things do you do to bring yourself back to baseline?
0: I try to listen to my body as much as I possibly can, so if my body is telling me Hey, you know, rest, then I usually give myself that. I try not to overindulge in the sleep, but I'll I'll give myself about 24 hours just to sleep as much as I need to in that day. You know, if if it spills over to the next day, I try to tone that down as much as possible, but I'll I'll still rest, but I'll be like, okay, no, uh, these dishes have to get done today. If nothing else, these dishes, and then I can rest. And then I try to increase it every day thereafter. Like, okay, um, today I'm going to do like a shower and the laundry and then so on and so forth. Um, just to kind of try to build up that stamina to try to get myself back to where I I was.
1: Yeah. To yourself set yourself increasing goals each day.
0: Exactly.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Where do you notice where do you n- notice an increase in in symptoms first?
0: So <clears throat> usually <clears throat> when i when i start to to notice that things are going to start sliding is when i get up and i don't want to take that shower cuz that's usually where my trauma triggers start is is in that bathroom so when i go into that bathroom and i'm trying to get in the shower and i just can't do it then i'm like oh okay like We're, we're going into it. I'm still trying uh, to get through that hump of, okay, even though you feel like this, you still have to get to that point, but there's just days and there's times where I just, I, I can't. So that is an area that me and my therapist are working on getting through, but for now, yeah, that's, that's that hump still.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I can relate to that as well. Taking care of self is usually the first first kind of thing to go for me as well. What is one thing that you do daily that supports your recovery?
0: Aside from taking my meds, because you know, I, I need my meds to help stabilize uh, my mood and my anxiety. But staying connected to my support system, I really need my my support system. My husband's an over-the-road truck driver, so I am home alone a lot. And, you know, it's been nice. Um, My sister-in-law came over a couple of times last week, and she gave me a call a couple of times last week. So, um, and she was going through her own stuff, um, but she still took the time to to come over and and we talked and we cried and we connected and and that was good
1: that's awesome yeah being connected to people that um you know understand what we're going through understand how our illnesses manifest themselves and understand what recovery looks like for us and how to support us and getting back on track is super important um because it can be hard for us to reach out when we're not doing well. Um, let's talk about a little bit about the last couple of weeks. Her, uh, April and I talked about this before we hit record on the podcast. And I think it's a great opportunity to kind of share what that looks like for her, what it looks like when things kind of start to decline and what it looks like for her as she tries to climb her way back to, to balance so let's talk a little bit about the last couple of weeks. What did that look like for you?
0: Yeah, so um you know I'm in litigation right now for my kids with my parents and uh, and that's that's hard um, you know, like you were saying earlier uh, when we feel our sadness, you know it really is and I have n- not heard it like that before, but that really does make sense to me. It's like a third degree burn. So my kids are, are a huge emotional trigger for me. Um, I miss them so badly. Out of my five kids, I got to see two of them. Then I got to talk to two of my daughters and they did not tell me that they loved me. They were telling my mom how much they missed and loved her. And um, and I got home and I, mean, I was just emotionally just drained and damaged and ran over and just sad and upset you know I tried to I tried to get through it the best that I could um but I had gotten some other devastating information that just really rocked my world and I did not like it and I just uh I just shut down a little bit And then I I went to work on Monday and I had Tuesday off and Tuesday I was like, I'm doing nothing. Like I am going to cook some food Um, because I I didn't want to get too deep into it. So I I wanted to eat, but I wanted to do nothing else. And then I went back to work um, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, but Wednesday when I went to work, um, my doctor's office, my psychiatrist's office calls me and says, So your psychiatrist is no longer in the practice. And here's some suggestions for you. And my mind was not comprehending what this lady on the phone was saying. Um, I'm like hyperventilating. I'm kind of uh, panicking. And I'm like, okay, I'm sorry, what? Um, So she repeated herself. And she's like, just talking. And I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm like, so what were your suggestions again? So I'm I'm taking down some notes and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm not taking your suggestions. I said, I will go find my own because I did not like hers. So I get off the phone and I'm like, okay, like, what am I going to do? Panicking a little bit. But there was a difference. And, and this is where the DBT came into play. Me a year ago, my whole world would have been lit on fire the world would have been crashing down, but I managed to just text my sister-in-law and I was just like, my psychiatrist left the practice and now I have to go find a new one and I'm scared. And then I, I did, I just, I called who I wanted to call. I explained the situation, got some information. And then I called my primary care office to find out if in the interim, my primary care would go ahead and fill my prescriptions um, texted my therapist to let my therapist know what happened and everything that I've done, you know, in that process. And my therapist was just like, Hey, I'm so proud of you. Like you're using your wife yeah. and not your, uh, emotional mind. She's like, you've honored your emotions. You know, you've let yourself grieve this process, but you're working like through your emotions. And so, you know, the The final outcome is the next day I went and I filled out those, the packet for my new psychiatrist who I'm looking forward to seeing in three months. Um, my medications are going to be managed between then. My pharmacy is already aware that this shift has happened and who to send my meds to. And, and I did all of that without freaking out. And I let my, my clinical supervisor know, you know, Hey, look, like this is something that I'm going through, but you know, my my clinical supervisor and I have been working so hard on helping me gain confidence in myself that I feel like that work has also helped that I was confident in my own ability that I could execute my own plans. And I mean, I, yeah, between the DBT and all that, I mean, I felt like I, I came out pretty well. Then this weekend came along and I, I had this whole giant plan of like, I'm going to get all these things done in my house. I did not. Um, Saturday, you know, I took quite a few good naps, but I listened to my body. You know, I did some dishes and I did some laundry, but I woke up this morning and I took that shower and I finished up my dishes and that's what the other side looks like. Yeah.
1: I'm very impressed. That's super hard stuff. So I mean, I don't even know if it really matters what your diagnosis is, to be honest. Like when you have worked with a psychiatrist for a length of time um, and shared with them and developed trust and rapport with them, and you feel like You know, you're, you know, maybe you're on good meds that are managing your symptoms, maybe you're in the process of trying to find that balance of medications that work for you. Um, that can be really um kind of upsetting and and like you said, rock your world when all of a sudden um your psychiatrist is no longer no longer a part of you know the clinic that you were going to. And so the fact that you were able to one. Have your moment of freak out because I think that's, I think that's pretty normal or common. I feel like I would have my little moment of panic as well if that happened to me. Acknowledge it, use your skills, and then make your plan and follow through to be able to say, nope, I don't like your suggestions. I'm going to call and check around and find my own. Um calling your primary care doctor and saying, can you manage my meds in the interim? Letting your pharmacy know there was a change. And here's the kicker, which is super valuable um, for somebody who does the work that we do. Letting your clinical supervisor know, right? Because it's important that our clinical supervisors know when we have these kind of big life changes happening, how are they going to A, support us, right? be able to look out for changes in our behaviors if we are struggling and hold us accountable to do the work that we need to do while being supported to find balance again. And so kudos to you for that specific piece too. Um, And I I think sometimes as peer support specialists, we can miss that piece right? Maybe we do all the other pieces that we need to do to kind of, you know, manage the crisis in the moment, but we may not always let the people in that we need to let in. Um, And a clinical supervisor is pretty important to let them know what's going on with us. They, They are huge in supporting us at work, and our wellness is key to us being able to do the work that we do, right? And so, if I'm not balanced and I'm unwell, how am I supposed to support other people on their recovery journey towards wellness? So it's really important that our clinical supervisors know that. Yeah. The other thing that we that we um, wanted to talk about a little bit is how do you know when your when your recovery isn't being supported. My
0: recovery—it's not a hundred percent just mental health. I mean, my my recovery is uh, both sided with addiction as well. For me, a lot of the time that I was using substance, it was to take away that emotional pain that I was going through. When when my when my mental health is not. In the greatest place. um, That's when I know that I am at risk of, you know, relapse in other areas. And I was just talking about this with my best friend the other day um, because her her cousin is going through it. And so, um, you know, I was telling her I have to be very mindful of my recovery in all aspects. So I have to. I have to just keep myself at a certain level. I mean, I can't let myself get below a certain level or else I will just tip over. And I have not ever let let myself get to that point Um, because one slip and I'm it's it's over. But there have been plenty of times where, you know, I sit there and I say, you know, just just let me. Just let me cut myself once and I'll just be okay. You know, I don't want to feel this emotional. And so it's always supported because I don't hide those thoughts. Um, that's the key. I don't hide my thoughts and, and my my own concerns, um, whether it's texting my husband. I am at such a rough point right now. I don't want to live or I'm at such a rough point right now I really just want to cut myself. And then you know he just sits there and he says um you know just something just anything and then it's like oh you know what he he is right like I do need to like reframe my brain. And then that's when I will use one of my skills again that my therapist has taught me and that's like okay yeah it it's true. I really do not want to do that because I don't want to completely just fall off.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me as well. I I also am in recovery from uh non-suicidal self-injury. Some people call it self-harm. Um that's a part of my story as well. And yeah, especially early on in the first couple of years, that is one thing that for me it was hard To kind of not go there in my mind a little bit Um, when I was hurting, when I was suffering, when I had intense sadness, intense anger, feelings of betrayal, feelings of hurt, grieving. Yeah. And I think there was a part of me, right, because I couldn't use substances anymore and I hadn't fully developed coping skills that that I was good at using in the moment anyways. I didn't feel understood. I didn't wanna be a burden. And so these kind of, you know, that was one thing that I felt like, well, I can't, people won't know, it'll help. I can't get in trouble for this, right? It's not a relapse, so it's better than that. And so, yeah, it, it took me a while and I had to be honest about that. Um, In the recovery program that I was working, I was honest about that at drug court because I was in drug court at that time. I was honest with that, um, with the people that I lived in sober living with, and we had to build a plan around how to not utilize those skills as my coping skills and how to use different skills as my coping skills, but there was a good chunk of time there that in my mind... That's where I would go. And you're right. I had to be really honest about that with my mouth. I had to say, this is what I'm thinking about so that the people around me could support me in making a different choice because I didn't want to continue to participate in that. I didn't want to continue to cause physical scars on my body. Um, I wanted to be able to use healthier skills to manage my emotional pain and distress But yeah, for a lot of people with borderline personality disorder, non suicidal self injury or self harm is part of that story. And it can be easy when things get rough and we're struggling to go to that place in our mind. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we want to die or that we're suicidal. It just means that we want someplace else for that pain to go. And oftentimes when we, can make that pain something physical. It it will dissipate afterwards. Um, Yeah. So kudos to you for saying those things because that in itself is a tool to say, this is what I'm thinking about and I don't want to do it. So I'm telling you about it. So let's talk about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm really, really proud of you and really impressed at the work that you do and the work that you've done. Um, on yourself, and you bring great insight to be able to help other people who also have borderline personality disorder. That's one thing that I found um, not a lot of people can relate to that don't have that diagnosis or, or don't have experiences or stories similar to ours. And I think it's wonderful that you get to help and support other people that have this diagnosis, because for me, I didn't have that. And it's really challenging when you can't find anybody that relates to you in that way. And Mm so I'm grateful that the people that you work with have that in you because that's huge. Just us having this conversation, it's nice to have. It's nice to to see somebody else and hear them share. Yeah, I know what that feels like too. And this is what I did. This is what I do to maintain my recovery. I'm really impressed by the work that you've done. Well, I'm really, really grateful that you came on today to share your experiences. I hope that our listeners find something in your story that can help them in their recovery journey and thanks to all of our listeners for listening to our recovery talks podcast today if you're interested in being on a recovery talks podcast or in maybe giving us a topic something that you would like to hear us discuss that you haven't heard um, you can email me at mandy at mtpeernetwork.org thanks again and have a great day